A quick content warning before we begin. This episode contains mentions of suicide and descriptions of self-harm. More specific warnings will be given before each piece, so please, take care, monsters. Also, stay tuned at the end of our episode for details about our Pride Month Patreon drive. Now, on to the show. They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. Often, the stuff of nightmares is our own personal worst-case scenario, like being hopelessly lost in the woods, stunned with senseless violence, or trapped in depression. When faced with these horrors, the veil between reality and imagination may begin to blur. Our first piece, The Creature in the Woods, recalls a harrowing sighting that holds dark power over the surviving witness long after the fact. This story was written by Christopher J. Teuton of Filthy and Free Publishing and was read by Ari Ryder. Please be advised this story features a brief mention of suicide. I've always had a complicated relationship with the Christmas holiday season. I remember enjoying them, I think, as a child and into my younger years, and it caused no great trauma to my psyche when I discovered, as all children must do, that even parents can lie. However, it was when I was in my mid-teens, burned indelibly into my memory despite my somewhat limited recollection of other events amid blurs of the drinking parties of youth and the tumultuous ups and downs of romantic entanglements, that I had my first unamicable holiday experience. I was fifteen then, fresh-faced with a learner's permit, and emboldened with the same unimpeachable intelligence that wraps itself around the minds of all teenagers, and the scarcely populated woods that I grew up in proved a habitual common ground for all sorts of communal mischief between my similarly aged posse of cohorts. There was nothing immediately foreboding about the trees that surrounded us, save for the slightly unnerving sound of the scraping tin of Mr. Burns' old farmhouse roof, scratching and slamming rhythmically in the breeze near about a mile and a half away, carried to us in part by the quiet lack of buildings and people that helped sounds travel farther in the countryside. There were six of my usual group with us at first, and after some drinks and confusion, most huddled around the warmth of a burn barrel and began making their best guesses about the obscene and hilarious acts that the missing two may be performing on each other. The revelry went on for some time, until one of us made a mention of the still-missing two and that the night had grown late and cold, the four of us remaining having long run out of nearby fallen timber to burn, and... Under the assumption that they could not have left the woods without us, with old Mr. Byrne being the only occupant for at least five miles in any direction, and we four still in possession of the only vehicle for at least as many, that we would split up in search of them. It was December 24th. I am not one who is easily startled by broken twigs or crunching leaves in the distance, having spent most of my childhood, and indeed many of my adult years as well, living in rural, or at least rural-adjacent areas. Yet I recall the hairs on the back of my neck standing on end for no discernible reason at the strange sounds and even stranger smells that emanated from the dark forest once I was alone and fully consumed in the throng of blackness. I had nothing but the flashlight on my phone, a poor excuse if compared to the phones of today, for this one must be flipped open to be turned on at all, and as such had a screen light that reflected back into my face, as well as the camera's flash, which seemed to be set on some sort of constant luminous setting, illumining the ground in front of me, the end result of which meant that I had very poor visibility, and to this I attribute not only some of my unwarranted fear, but also the distraction which perhaps caused me to move off of my original path and caused me to reach the horror I found that night. Not knowing this, however... I simply closed my eyes briefly, took a deep breath, and ventured into the darkness. 
It seemed as I moved myself deeper into the woods and away from my group's starting search point that the trees around me became slightly denser, as well as the texture of the earth beneath me becoming more sponge-like and algae-covered than the hard dirt I had been experiencing for hours before. I called the names of both of the missing people, but I recall my breath feeling short, as if I had exerted myself in some fashion, and the words came out much quieter and weaker than I had expected, falling flat and empty in the now misty and even colder darkness. And the lack of my own vocal sounds suddenly jogged my brain, and reminded me that I had not heard the voices of my companions, who, until now, had been calling out the names of the missing as I had, for more than a few minutes, and I stopped suddenly in the middle of a small circular clearing, testing the timbre of my voice and calling out one more time. I then turned around and started back the way I had come, with no small amount of untraceable fear in the back of my mind, but soon stopped my retreat as my own trail back through the woods seemed to disappear underneath the spongy underbrush and gave no hint as to the way in which I had arrived dropping me instead into an equally similar circular clearing of trees. I was lost, I thought to myself, for perhaps the first and only time in my life. My mind seemed to move on its own, reverting into some sort of autopilot mode that had been molded in youth without my knowledge by my father, and almost robotically I broke off a nearby piece of dry tree branch and stuck it into the ground, as if it were a flag marker assuring myself that I would know if I took another wrong turn and visited this place again. I took another long, deep breath and tried very hard not to think about the fog that encroached ever denser around the trees and myself, and to instead focus on where the moon was the last time I checked, and how many turns in the woods I had taken since then, and had I even seen the moon in the past hour, and how long have we been out here searching? The most unnerving thing, then, I remember was the disturbingly small amount of answers that I was able to give myself to these questions, and the fact that I was far enough away to not even hear the scratching of Mr. Burns' roof anymore. I made a decision, as best I could, and stepped out from my marked path and into the woods with as much confidence as my body would allow. I don't know how far I walked then. I had not taken to excessive drinking at that age, despite what older audiences may assume and was quite in control of my faculties, and my sense of direction was surely intact. And to this day, I will confirm to the best of my knowledge that I did not stray or curve from anything but the arrow-straight path that I had laid out in my mind's eye. And yet, without any tangential movements on my part, I somehow still arrived, after nearly 30 minutes of walking, in the same circle of trees again, confirmed to the exact fact of existence by the placement of the wooden branch in the spongy earth directly in front of me. I had traveled for near on half an hour, and yet had made no progress at all. And for a moment, my faculties erred, and I let out a shriek not unlike that of one who has been wounded. And at that precise minute, I became overwhelmed with a sense of fear at a strength that I have not felt before. A fear of being lost forever in the dark mist, as if the knowledge that the sun would surely rise again the next morning had been erased from my memory. Truly, memory of any light at all was becoming hard to recollect, save for the blue haze of the phone's LED screen, which I had since grown accustomed to and did barely register. And it was then, of course, once I had noticed it again, that the battery on the phone died and my last source of light was extinguished, and I took off running through the darkness like a man possessed. Dodging downed trees and entangling vines, I knew not how far or how long I ran, only that this time I'd not choose a straight path but instead adopted something of a serpentine motion through the forest, turning left and right at odd intervals, and only at moments which seemed intrinsically appropriate for such a diversion to be made. I blundered loudly through the underbrush, and yet over the scrapings of my own feet against small bushes and vines, I thought I could almost hear the scratching sound of old Mr. Burns' roof, and the confidence in my own decision-making that the sound allotted urged my feet forwards at an even faster pace than before stamping out innumerable baby pines and wild blackberry bushes, until fate took hold and I took a single step wrongly and became hooked ankle-first around a large kudzu vine that had been previously snaking its way across the forest floor unimpeded. I fell to the ground, 
momentarily winded from impact, and it was only when I took several moments to catch my breath and massage my ankle that I looked around my immediate surroundings and saw, once again, the stick embedded in the spongy ground and the circle of trees around us. It was then, after emerging a third time into the cleared circle, that I heard the sounds of them. The feet of it, I mean. They had the pacing of a horse's hooves, spread far and timed almost melodically. But instead of a soothing, clopping sound, they instead exhibited something of a claw-like crunch in both immediate execution and the moment immediately after, which gave the impression of a claw-tipped fist grabbing and squeezing tightly a handful of dirt with each step. I heard the noises as they moved around me in a circular motion, counterclockwise, and I turned my body slowly with the movements, attempting to keep my eyes focused on the direction of the foot or claw steps and not do anything as foolish as leave my back exposed to the creature, whatever it may be. The thought of fleeing entered my brain immediately, but was squashed by the memories of hundreds of predators chasing down their fleeing prey that I had witnessed either online or on the television and not wanting to count myself among the numbers of helpless carrion leapt upon from behind, I instead did my best to locate the creature in the darkness using sound alone, and move backwards, as quietly as I could, away from its location. Someone called my name then. I don't remember which of my friends it was, and the simple sound of another human's voice was so startling and alien in the current situation that I at once jumped and lost all focus on the sounds of the creature, and instead found my voice to be loud and true as I called out back to them and began moving toward the sound of the noise. There was no tertiary response to mine, however, and soon I was walking slower and repeating myself to naught but the dark, foggy night once again. And sooner rather than later, I had found myself once again in the circular clearing. The scratching steps returned, and with them, this time, came a low growl, almost that of a sleeping dog having a dream. The call came again, clearly defined as my name, but the voice was less recognizable now, and in some indescribable way that felt malicious in intent, and I did not venture forth towards it a second time, but held my ground inside the foggy circle, and instead focused again on the circling sounds of the unknown beast. As I previously stated, I was 15 years old at the time, and had not yet encouraged the penchant for alcohol that I would find, in later years, a stoic and silent companion against the darkness that slowly encroached itself around my spirit. But that should remain a pertinent fact for those who wish to continue forward into the crux of my tale, which at this point becomes both fantastical and quite hellish in nature, and has been alluded to in the past as being a fanciful and extravagant exaggeration of the facts. Which, I can assure you, hypothetical reader, this testament is not. In any case, those venturing forward would do well to hold their biases at the door. As what happened to me on December 24th of my 15th year did indeed happen. And the repercussions of the encounter have continued to haunt me throughout the remainder of my life. All memories I have of the event are filtered through not only the haze of alcohol and depressants that have found themselves a most welcome home in my body and mind, but are also tinged with the nostalgic glint of days long past, although not forgotten, which can very easily and unwillingly add untruths where there previously was none. Being aware of all these issues, however, please give me the due process of telling my tale as I remember it occurring, and judging for yourself at the end. I was in the circle of trees once again, and doing my best to not be terrified of the long steps of the unknown beast. I counted them, reassuring myself that at least there was only four, and I was not dealing with some kind of demon hybrid animal that had more than the normal number of limbs, or a giant spider. And then the realization dawned on me that perhaps a spider big enough would move only a few of its limbs at a time, and perhaps when I was counting four footsteps, I was merely counting half at a time, when I shook myself from such nonsense as giant spiders and once again closed my eyes and took a few deep breaths. When I opened my eyes again, it was there, translucently silhouetted by the moonlit fog that surrounded us. What it was, I could only guess. My memory is spotty, and I worry that some things have been filled in during that first experience with my own brain over time. I will do my best to describe what I saw below, and to eliminate anything that contains anything other than the god's truth about the occurrence, to the best of my knowledge. 
It was large, eight, perhaps nine feet long, and covered with scales. At first glance, one might think the creature was an alligator, especially if spotted in water, and yet it had far too many disproportionate features and distinguishing characteristics for my brain to simply label it as such and move on. Most immediately noticeable was a long, thin strip of colored hair that ran from the nape of the beast's neck down the length of his back and ending at the base of its tail, which was leather-like and thick and swung slowly back and forth as the creature stared off into the darkness. It did indeed stand on four legs, a fact which I found somewhat comforting, but the legs on which it stood were no normal alligator's legs. For one, they were too long, nearly doubling or tripling the size of the creature, and they bent backwards upon themselves at odd angles, as if they had been broken at the joints. My body could do naught but trace the length of the animal with my eyes, etching every odd contour and dissension from animal norms into my mind, to be pulled back later on innumerable occasions when I would lie in bed and try, unsuccessfully, to reach a calm and peaceful sleep. At the base of each too long leg was another tuft of hair, darkly colored like the ridge on the creature's back, and barely hidden underneath that were long, finger-like claws that extended outwards in six different directions, and seemed to flex and grind themselves into the dirt below. It had not yet noticed me, or if it had, it made no actions against my presence. Perhaps I should have backed away, or turned to run, but both options seemed quite impossible to execute. Surely, if I had not yet been found, the movement would quickly bring an end to the amicable peace between us, and the creature would be upon me in an instant. And although I pride myself something of a decent boxer, I knew I would be no match for such a massive opponent. And then, of course, there was the problem that I knew not the proper direction in which to make my escape, and the thought of running into an entire group of such beasts kept my feet firmly rooted in their positions, and I instead continued my examination with the stoic resignation of a man on trial awaiting his sentence. There was something almost prehistoric about the creature, as if I had seen a drawing of it in a book on dinosaurs in my childhood, but twisted, wrong, and in even odder ways than just the long, bent backward limbs. Having no other option than curiosity, then, and for the first time, I steeled my courage and forced myself to look into the face of the beast, and in doing so I immediately lost whatever amount of innocence and courage that was left in my young mind. I fell backwards, my mouth hanging open stupidly in a silent scream of pure and abject horror, as my brain promptly dissipated from existence and my limbs became flaccidly unmoving and useless. The thing turned upon me then, placing one long, broken forearm on either side of my torso, even further emphasizing the gigantic size of the creature as I looked helplessly upwards into the white, lizard-like underbelly that was easily twice my width. I gibbered uncontrollably frothing at the mouth in fear, and perhaps it was the noise or the smell of terror that I no doubt emanated, but it was then that the creature opened its mouth and swallowed me. What I remember next is only fragments, pieced together over the years from sudden realizations and recalled memories during the mandatory hypnotherapy sessions. I will endeavor to describe as best I can the series of actions but taken out of context and without being able to adequately describe the feelings involved, I can only hope to translate to you, hypothetical reader, the full extent of senses and truth that I encountered inside the creature in the woods. For, in accordance with my memory, that is indeed where I was transported to. The inside of the creature's body was massive, far larger than it looked from the outside, but unmistakably flesh-like and reeking of bile, which pooled at the corners nearby my feet and dripped acidly from the ceiling. The fear and terror had left me as quickly as I had arrived, and instead I now suddenly felt as if I was in a dream, or something deeper, better, calmer than such. I walked to the nearest pool of bile and knelt down next to it. I looked at my own reflection in the acid, and saw myself reflected back at me, but older, still unmistakably myself, but someone aged, near death with large, discolored eyes. The man who looked back at me was me, but crippled, old tired. And the longer I looked at the rippling image, the larger the man's eyes seemed to grow. I cocked my head to the side, and the reflection mirrored my action, and I leaned down then and fell face first into the liquid, which became salt water all around me, and I was momentarily flustered and swinging my limbs wildly as I found myself lost in the center of an endless ocean, struggling to breathe. 
I flailed and choked for what felt like an eternity, unable to tell up from down and left from right in the unending blue that surrounded me, and my ears began to pound with a furious drumming that threatened to burst. I let out the last of my breath then, resigning to death by air loss before the massive amount of ocean pressure turned my body into less than an object. When I felt an unexpected jerk in my navel, at a strength one would think possible to turn my skin inside out, and I rapidly began moving backwards at an incredible speed as if caught by an enormous invisible fish hook. Soon, for no explainable reason, I was able to breathe, and I saw that at the bottom of the ocean, coming into sharper view as I was pulled further away from it, was a gigantic electric sphere, oddly reminiscent of one of those toys kids would touch to make their hair stand on end. And as I moved even farther back, I could see other oceans, multiple spheres of water with electrical centers, hundreds, thousands of them. And then I felt a tremendous force on my back, and earth and rock exploded all around me as I broke through some sort of crust layer, and was at once surrounded by an orange sky and a land of dead trees. The hook in my navel disengaged, and I tumbled to the ground. To dwell on the hows and whys of such things has been the profession of numerous doctors and psychologists. And I myself have sat up countless nights trying to make any sort of logical sense for the things that happened to me, both then and since. But the answers are unknown to all but the one part of my brain that I dare not venture back to but cannot hold off forever. Further examination of worldly facts can do nothing but waste time. And I must hurry now, and finish telling. This is what I remember. I was surrounded by limbless trees underneath a brown-orange sky. My arm was bleeding from a hole. I scratched my arm, attempting to wipe the blood away, and the sky was immediately blotted out into darkness, and I felt myself crushed under massive pressure. I was in blackness. I was nothing. I had no body or mind, and yet I could see and think, and I saw more spheres of blue and electricity floating around each other in the black in some kind of purposeful spiraling dance. I moved myself somehow, or I moved them, pulling them closer to my view, and I saw even more orbs and lightning of different colors, and I pulled them closer, and suddenly, I was back in the creature's stomach, staring at the pool of vile while now reflected naught but blackness. I stood up and turned around. It was there, the creature, standing right in front of me, with its long, broken back forearms looming disconcertingly on either side of a lowered, ghastly head. The beast's eyes, one red and one green, both glowing brightly, stared at me without blinking. I stared back into those eyes, unable to do anything else, and felt somehow the immediate and unsettling anxiety of being judged by a stranger, of being judged on harsher and more strict terms than I had ever encountered before, an indescribable feeling of guilt and oppression washing over me, nearly as drowning as any ocean could be. The creature closed its eyes and began slowly rocking its head back and forth, and I felt that judgment coming. I felt the pressure of a thousand gavels against a thousand podiums, and the guilt of every locked cell and old tree. I felt the fires on the faces of women, and the scream of animals long abandoned. I knew my own faults, my deepest unmentionable ones, that are unknowable to anyone but myself, myself, and the creature. And I knew that it knew. It was all of the pain. It was all of the regret. The creature opened one eye. The green one. Then I was back in the woods where I had first started. I looked around myself, expecting some sort of trick. But there was nothing but a light fog in the night. I could hear the squeak of Mr. Burns' roof quite clearly, and I was soon joined by two other members of the original search party who had an oddly different recollection of the way events had transpired that night. According to my companions, it was I who had vanished while everyone was standing around the burn barrel, and the five of them who had organized a group to search the woods for me. No one had seen any sort of creature, alligator or otherwise. I was laughed at, and told that I had too much to drink, and at the time I thought it better to play it off as such, lest they think I may actually be crazy. Obviously, I was only able to put that off for so long. There remains little still to tell. That was the first encounter with the creature, and the only one that I can for sure say happened in the physical world, but not the last time I would see it. No, 
It visits me every year now. Every year since that night. Always in December, although the day has varied slightly. It's not always the 24th, although it's usually near it. What would a demon know about days, anyway? Yes, I call it a demon. I think it is. Over the years, I've tried to learn as much about it from my interactions as I could, although it gives me no perchance, and I must conduct all my research from hypnosis transcripts and stolen doctor's notes far after the fact. I've called it a demon before, at any rate, and I'll continue to curse it as such. Every year, it visits me. And every year, I am forced to relive the judgment cycle as it deems humanity worthy to exist or not. The time it takes to judge us gets longer and longer each year, and the pain and fear and terror that is channeled through me has become more than I can bear. I awaken the night after them every time, sometimes thrashing in agony, sometimes drenched in the cold sweat of unadulterated fear, always with the opened red eye of the creature burned into my brain like a branded mark. The persistence of such events, and their increased and expanded virulent nature over the years, has driven out all other options available to me. Doubt and rationality, the two hopeful saviors that I struggle to remain in control of. They attempt to rescue me in the daytime hours, but falter soon after sundown. The judgment always comes, and the anxiety that stretches between each encounter becomes stronger and more vivid, and the fear of it, and some irrevocable, undefinable feeling of loss that contains more pain than I can comprehend. I can take no more. Perhaps the demon can find another human to judge us through. Perhaps, once I am gone, it will simply forget about us. Perhaps its anger is directed at me and me alone. Either way, hypothetical reader, I am indeed most done. I will not continue on this any longer. The night grows cold, and although it is only the 22nd, I fear that my yearly visit is too close to put what must be done off any further. I have told the ones that I have loved how I feel about them. My debts are as paid as they can be, and I die in hopes that I will no longer feel the pain and torment of humanity again. I leave this letter as a matter of explanation, and in the absence of a life well lived, will at least give the doctors something to add to their already brimming journals on the subject of my psychosis. Suicide with a story always sells papers. A final thing. Try harder. All of you. The creature in the woods is watching, whether you believe in him or not. Our next piece takes us through a waking nightmare and the desperate ways in which our young protagonist tries to cope. I Call Him Charlie was written by Nicholas Wonderly and features Sheila Began as Holly, Matthew Aranda as Charlie, and Kai Hudson as the narrator. Please be advised that this story deals with suicidal behavior including descriptions of self-harm and features gore and vomit. Charlie's eyes shine like living specks of the night. He comes out of the first and last cut on Holly's wrist and wipes away the blood with his paper-white thumb. What the fuck? What sort of language is that for a kid? He's an American demon with an accent Holly's heard on television. He sits down before her in the empty bathtub. And what on earth is Miss Holly up to? What do you know about it, freak? I know. It's useless. His face splits into a nasty smile. Slit them up vertically if you want results. Charlie's eyes dare her to kill herself. His mocking smile reminds her that she is 13 years old, and her life is cushy and easy, and it will only ever get worse from here on out. She drops the razor. Charlie wipes Holly's tears away. He folds his freakishly long legs like an insect and takes Holly into his lap. There, there, baby cakes. Everyone wants attention. Charlie's smile is still there and still the same. He's mocking her. Holly gulps and straightens up, back scraping against the chrome faucet of the Paris bathtub. Where did you come from? 
What? Doesn't hell exist inside of you? The tiniest trickle of blood runs between Holly's legs and into the drain. Charlie's breath brushes Holly's ear and her wrist stings. Holly feels his cold heart sitting in his chest. A cold, dead lump. Must be nice. You're not a part of me, Holly decides. She looks out the window at a string of lights she thinks is the Eiffel Tower. Then are you going to kill me? No. I need you. Holly sees his shark teeth as his thin lips pull back in a smile. He strokes her hair with black fingernails. The blood congeals on Holly's wrist. She feels the last icy drop run down her arm. Thank you. It's raining in London. In Paris, gargoyles vomit murky water onto the streets, but London rain runs in gutters. Holly remembers her trip to France while it rains. A chalk drawing bleeds on the sidewalk. Gargoyle faces are carved from stone and modeled after monsters, sometimes monks. Monks are scarier than monsters. They hold their heads in their hands after they get chopped off. Charlie swings from the streetlight like a monkey. The raindrops fall right through him. What would happen if I brought you to a church? Would you explode? Holly had been inside Paris churches last December when she stayed in a hotel for six weeks with Mom and wondered why Dad hadn't come. It hadn't even snowed. It rained instead. Charlie likes the old churches, the monsters, and the monks. No, you've brought me to churches before, and I've been fine. Why? Charlie reminds Holly to turn on the corner of Fifth and Woodbury, and skips lightly beside her without splashing or rippling the curtain of water on the concrete. Every church has been defiled. Do you know what sort of beast Satan is? An angel. Sort of. Charlie's eyes are backwards. His whites are black around yellow irises, while his pupils are white. He stares up at the cloud-ridden sky curiously. Before there were angels, there was something else. There was you, and there was me, and there was Satan. You became a person, and you came to Earth. I became a demon, and stayed in limbo, and Satan became an angel. But he tore the space between Earth and Hell, bringing evil into your world. A hole just big enough for a snake to slither out. He loves his philosophical bullshit. But essentially, you, me, and Satan are the same. You can bring evil to the Earth. And you do. Churches are sanctified for maybe a day. And then one of you brings evil. And the whole system collapses. That's why I can get into churches just fine. The house is at the end of Woodbury, a dead-end street. The house, or the mausoleum, as Charlie puts it, is bigger than the last one, but it smells like mothballs and death. Holly walks up the drive. The door makes a horrible shriek. Dad swears he'll oil the hinges as soon as he unpacks his hardware. Mom wants him to buy new tools to get it done quicker. The sound will stop Holly from sneaking out, Dad counters, as if she has anywhere to go. Holly had wandered out of the hotel in Paris, onto the streets and over the Seine that fatherless Christmas Eve. Paris has places to go. There are letters on the mat. Holly walks past them, but Charlie stops to look. Calling card from your Aunt Victoria. The one with the dolls? Yes, unless you've got two. Is she dead yet? Holly leaves Charlie turning over the pastel pink card in his bloodless fingers. The mausoleum is quiet. Holly's footsteps echo around the kitchen while she makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Usually, Mom had a plate of snacks for her, but maybe she finally realizes that a 13-year-old can take care of herself. Holly eats half the sandwich and decides she isn't hungry. She throws the rest away. Why are your parents so quiet? Are they dead? Charlie slips off the table, away from the window, and stands in front of Holly, demandingly the way he does when he feels he isn't getting enough attention. They're not dead. Shut up. They could be dead. Anyone could die at any time. You could die right now. No, I couldn't. Shut up. Holly turns away and walks around the counter so she doesn't have to shove Charlie out of the way. The mausoleum is silent. Mom! The sound echoes, too. Holly's voice sounds louder than it should. If she doesn't answer after you ask three times, she's dead. 
Holly knows that Charlie's just being a git, but she bites back the temptation to call out again nonetheless. Holly wanders through the downstairs without making another sound. The garage door is already open, she realizes, as she goes to unlock it. Her parents never leave without locking all the doors. The car's in the garage. Dad's home. Holly goes to shut the door before she realizes the window to the garage is open. Aha! Charlie reaches right through Holly's chest and squeezes her heart. Her breath catches in her throat, and pain shoots through her face. Vulnerable. The mausoleum is left vulnerable. They're dead. They're dead. They're dead. Holly jerks away. Charlie's hand comes out of her chest with a hideous squelch. Charlie laughs out loud, and the sound comes from everywhere and nowhere, burbling up through the floor and flooding Holly's head even as she runs away from him. Mom! Holly hears the fear in her voice. It gives Charlie darker colors, makes him less real and more real all at the same time. God, why was he so useless? Holly hates her heart for jumping in her chest. Mom! Oh, God. Shut up. Shut up! Holly races up the stairs, spiky panic swelling in her stomach. The old house didn't have stairs. Holly forgets sometimes that she lives in a two-story house. Charlie is somehow beside her, moving languidly. How could you have been so careless? God, shut up, Charlie! Holly slips on something on the staircase and knows what it is before she turns to see the pool of blood on the hardwood. Holly screams and sees nothing but blood. Her father's bloody corpse is draped over the banister. Her mother's head is lying on the top step. Red blood. Dripping, sticky, scarlet blood. Holly wakes in her bed with Charlie's hand on her forehead. His shark teeth come together, and he shushes her as she makes to scream. Holly. Holly. Charlie repeats her name until she calms. The light is different now, streaming straight through the window. Holly pushes Charlie's hand off her forehead and sits up. Oh, God. Vomit smears Holly's cheek. A chunky puddle of it slides towards her bum as she shifts her weight. Holly's strength fails her as she tries to roll out of bed, and she clatters to the ground. Charlie squats over her. It isn't smart to stand up yet. Lay back down. Had it been a dream? Holly clings to this hope and doesn't believe it for a moment. She sees red drip through the walls, and her head lolls. I'm not going to lie and vomit, asshole. Charlie has shark teeth not to trap or to rip, but to hold and protect. You need to rest. Holly stands up, stumbles weakly to the armchair in the corner, and collapses again, turning her nose away from the foul stench on the bed. Blood oozes out of the cushions with a wet hiss. Holly closes her eyes, squeezes them so tightly she can see yellow sparks. She retches and dry heaves over the arm of the chair, but nothing else comes up. Charlie puts his hand on the small of Holly's back, somehow sliding up onto the cushion with her, folding his freakishly long legs beneath his slim frame. Quiet now. Holly takes in a shuddering breath, stealing herself. She seizes Charlie's lapel and cries into his chest. Hush, baby cakes. Air whistles through Charlie's teeth. Holly stares into his face as the rest of her room dissolves and becomes blood. Holly feels his cold breath against the tear tracks on her cheeks. I know it was you, Holly says. Charlie smiles softly and leans back against the armrest. A promise. Everything will sort itself out. I'll take care of you until then. Holly can't lean away, so she presses herself to Charlie's chest. Wet tears from some mixed emotion she can't name stream down her cheeks. Charlie's heart is beating for the first time. She feels its strong pulse beneath her cheek. His chest is warm from her parents' souls, as if they really are a pair of light bulbs. Holly nestles into the warmth and realizes she doesn't care to know the truth behind the lie Charlie's telling her. It's three months later, and Charlie's been with her all this time. The doctors tried to draw him out, but Holly knows how to hide him. Charlie follows her all the way to Aunt Victoria's house. 
Holly watched Aunt Victoria bully the hospital into relinquishing her, but even after all the yelling and arguing, Aunt Victoria still abandons Holly to Charlie the minute they cross the threshold. Holly doesn't mind. Aunt Victoria is not a mother nor a friend. She is a keeper of dolls. Holly sees Charlie reflected in false irises, but sometimes she's not certain if the figure she sees is him. Often, he appears in more than one place at a time, though she can never catch him at it when she looks away from the reflections. Aunt Victoria spends hours primping and arranging the dolls, shuffling their order on the shelves, changing their outfits, cleaning the dust out from the corners of their glossy eyes. Polly can't guess what she sees reflected there. Raindrops patter against the windows of the old house. September 1st is dark and gray. Holly knows Aunt Victoria would never force her to go out. Aunt Victoria would probably be happy to dress Holly up in a colonial dress and leave her in a glass case, but something inside Holly knows that if she misses the first day of school, she won't go back until someone in a uniform drags her off. She stands up and shoulders her bag under the gaze of hundreds of chintzy eyes. The dolls are here in the kitchen. They're in the laundry room and even the bathroom. They're probably in the basement, too, but Holly hasn't dared to check. Don't go. I can't go with you today. The bones in Charlie's back are illuminated by the baubles that he says are Holly's parents' souls. They shine as brightly as they did six months ago when he turns to lead her back up the stairs. Why not? Aunt Victoria doesn't drive? Holly frowns. I've seen you walk through rain. I'm too solid now. Charlie steps back into the kitchen and runs his finger along the bottom of Holly's mug, mopping up the last of the hot chocolate with his finger and plopping it into his mouth. The souls inside him bob when he swallows. Don't go today. Stay here with me. Aunt Victoria won't even notice that you're still here. I'm going to school. I can't miss my first day. You won't be safe without me. Holly is pricked at this and she bristles. Shut up, Charlie. He knows better than to protest as Holly opens the door and steps out into the rain. She knows he won't, but is still, somehow, surprised when he says nothing. It shouldn't be so easy to be rid of him. Was it so easy all this time? Holly feels the raindrops in her hair and walks with her head down. It's strange to not have him near her. Strange, also, to be far away from her parents' souls. She missed the funeral, but Aunt Victoria had taken her to see the graves. Her parents had two separate headstones, which Aunt Victoria had thought indecent. Holly didn't correct her then, and she hopes she never will. She still wants to believe that Charlie killed them both. Holly is unable to go farther than the street corner. She stands next to the crosswalk button, but she can't push it. The rain peters away. Her tears replace the raindrops on her face. Slowly, she looks up with a tear-streaked face and sees him, feels Charlie's cold and the warmth of her parents' souls bobbing like balloons in his chest. He's reaching for her, saying something, but Holly can only look at him through iron bars, the tear tracks on her face that block him from touching her. Because what she had seen on the stairs had been realer than he was. She had stepped in her parents' blood. It hadn't been clean, or quick, or classy. Charlie had not sucked her soul out, was not holding it for her. Holly was nowhere near her mother. Holly. Where was she? Cars whizzed past. Holly watches Charlie's outline. Holly had stepped in her mother's blood, seen her head lying on the landing. What sort of a suburban woman, with a brand new house and a growing daughter and a husband who made her heart-shaped pancakes, dies by chainsaw? Holly! And how was Holly supposed to hate her father when she missed him, too? He'd put a bullet in his heart and left her behind. It hadn't been Charlie. Charlie had been a shield against those words in the hospital when it was whispered between nurses who thought Holly couldn't hear. But there was no shield now. No souls gleaming in a ribcage prison. No sacrifice. No demon protector. No Charlie. Holly! His voice has become tinny. He can't stop Holly from sprinting out into the street. He reaches, grasps, but isn't faster than an oncoming black cab. The cab is scratched now. 
One of Holly's earrings rolls off its hood as Charlie lifts it industriously. He props up the hood and roots in the machine innards for something Holly can't see. She sits cross-legged and can't feel the asphalt beneath her. What are you doing? Speaking to me now, are you? Charlie speaks out loud, which he only does when he's irritated. His voice is beautiful, his throat lined with velvet, but it comes from everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Holly sits on the asphalt and hates herself for deigning to speak to him. Charlie fastens a pair of jumper cables to something inside the car and taps the clips together. A little blue bolt of electricity connects them. Why are you still here? You're saying you didn't miss me? His voice fills the rainless air, and Holly loathes how she can't stop hearing it. Not at all. The Christmas lights, all Holly has of her parents, bob faintly in the place where Charlie's heart should be. He stretches the jumper cables and sits cross-legged next to her. The asphalt is littered with broken glass from Holly's impact with the windshield. Can't you see that I'm only trying to help? Holly looks right past him. He's opaque, but she can pretend that he's not. Charlie shrugs, clicks his cables together again. Holly's eyes jump to the clips. Don't you dare. Charlie lunges, clips, recoils. Clamps bite through Holly's shirt. She screams. A lightning bolt wakes her up. She's in an ambulance and her chest is burned. An EMT cradles her head. Holly's head lolls, but she's breathing again. Aunt Victoria comes back to the hospital, but even her mad charisma can't get Holly out early this time. Holly sits up with a cup of water and an aching chest. She watches her aunt dab her eyes quietly on her handkerchief. She's so upset, Holly can't even see any dolls on her besides the tiny straw keychain that Aunt Victoria left lying on the bedside table. Holly wonders why the keychain isn't in its usual spot between Aunt Victoria's nervous fingers before her aunt gathers the strength to speak. Those goddamn dolls, she says. Goddamn dolls! She lets out a breath and takes it in again with a gasp. They were there when nobody else was. You must understand, but I... Holly, I'm so sorry. So, so sorry. So sorry. It becomes a mumbled mantra. Aunt Victoria's fingers worry a hole in the hem of her blouse. It was a question, somehow. Holly began to feel it in the air. She looks up and sees Charlie. He is unapologetic. He still holds the souls. But why? Isn't the truth out? It's okay. The answer to her aunt's question comes to Holly, and she speaks it. She decides on a nickname for Aunt Victoria as she does so, and it slips out of her mouth. Auntie, it really is okay. I understand. They were a cushion, those dolls. Holly hides her smile behind her now empty cup. What childish things, dolls. But then again, they're as childish as an imaginary friend, aren't they? Well, you, of all people know, there's power in pretending. He's not even embarrassed. He knows. He knows he can't be real, but there he stands. He looks at Holly over the lights in his chest. I can't let you stay forever. Holly whispers into her cup so Aunt Victoria doesn't hear. Charlie is right next to the old woman, all but touching her. Let me keep these. Charlie passes a hand over his chest. Holly glances at the white line on her wrist, nothing but a memory, just a funny little line, a thin white line. She holds the paper cup between her teeth. I forgive you. You shouldn't, but Aunt Victoria lets slip a wry smile. My brother's agreed to come up from Germany. He'll stay with us for as long as we need. Or maybe you'll be better off with him, who knows. Whatever suits you best, that's what matters. You don't need me here with you. Charlie sits down on the edge of Holly's bed. She tries not to look at the glowing knobs in his chest. Don't think about that. You're not strong enough. It's not your responsibility to care for me, dear. Aunt Victoria seems surprised at the word. It slips out of her mouth like a little pearl, and Holly watches it dribble down her chin. Aunt Victoria blushes and stands up. 
I'm going to go see how long they plan to keep you cooped up, she offers, before scooping up her keys and the stray keychain and bustling away. Charlie scoots up closer. Holly feels the warmth of her parents' souls, and she knows they're not real. She knows Charlie isn't real, that there's nothing pressing on her bedspread, nothing that places its frosty hands with charcoal-colored nails on her fingers. Don't leave me, baby cakes. I'd miss you. Her eyes slide one last time from the scar on her wrist to Charlie's black eyes. They are horrible, as always, but nowhere near as horrible as the whitewashed wall that stands behind. Stay for now, she says. Charlie slides into the place Holly's pillow sits behind her head. He cradles her as he did in the bathtub. The soles dance behind his breastbone, but Holly doesn't need them to, not anymore. She rests her head on Charlie's chest, feels the thump of his heart slow and finally stop. The place her parents' souls had been grows cold and dead, but Charlie presses her close and numbs the pain. One day, Holly will feel it. She'll feel everything that Charlie blocks, everything he represents, every thought she hates, every piece of herself she doesn't want to look at and see in her own image. For now, she'll call him Charlie. to our sleeping hours. Where will you turn, dear listener, when your nightmares come for you? Thanks again to Christopher J. Teuton and Nicholas Wonderly for contributing to this episode, and to Ari Ryder, Sheila Began, Matthew Aranda, and Kai Hudson for their performances. Featured music was by Eric Matias, Ben Sounds, Geographer, Twin Musicom, Aaron Kenny, Mew Sextile, Dan Bowden, and Silent Partner. This episode's sound design and production was done by Christopher J. Tuton. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Our next episode, Ritual, will be released in June. In the meantime, stay up to date with podcast news, submission calls, and our love for spooky memes at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Our supporting producers are Thara Rungan, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland. We also want to thank our other patrons who make this show possible and you listeners who make this work a dream come true. But don't just thank our patrons. Consider becoming one. Next month is Pride Month, and in honor of that, all new or upgrading patrons will receive exclusive rewards such as stickers and a special one-off Phantom of the Cinema movie review. Remember, for as little as a dollar a month, you can help us compensate our writers and editors, creating a unique platform for LGBTQ plus writers in this evolving genre. Until next time, Monsters out.